Bibles, please, for our first reading, our New Testament reading, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also... We pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. All right, so we have a, we have a new book. Um, the introduction for 2 Thessalonians isn't a lot different from the intro for 1 Thessalonians. Most New Testament scholars believe that 1 and 2 Thessalonians were written very, uh, very near one to another in time. So that Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians and then shortly thereafter wrote 2 Thessalonians. Uh, you can see that many of the same themes break in to this uh, first chapter as they did in the prior book that Paul speaks to them about their tribulation, their persecution, and so on. As we read through uh, chapter 17 of the book of Acts, we see that the, that the Jews in Thessalonica were most vehement against the Christian church. And so this is the persecution that Paul speaks of here. Of course, the author is Paul. He is still with Silvanus and Timothy, as we read before. This is in keeping with the narrative from Acts 15, 16, and 17. If you read Acts 15, 16, and 17 with 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians in mind, you will see that Paul and Luke are consistent in their story, right? And this is what we would expect. This is, after all, the very word of God. 
His word is creative of reality. And so while some scholars would doubt things that are going on in the Bible, we don't do that. The recipients, obviously the Thessalonian church, probably 52 or 53 AD. And so this, we believe, puts these two books, uh, first and second, with regard to what Paul wrote in the New Testament, some of the earliest writings of the New Testament. Uh, A brief outline, perhaps. We have the greeting here in verses 1 through 2, thanksgiving, verses 3 and 4, the righteous judgment of God in 5 through 10 of this first chapter, and then Paul's prayer in 11 and 12. Then we have what's called the parousia of Christ. That's a Greek word that has made its way into our English language. The word parousia means the second coming or the, or the presence of Christ. As he makes that, that presence of his known when he returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on his enemies and giving rest to his friends. So the parousia of Christ talks about Christ's second coming. The bodily return of Christ. Don't let anyone tell you that he will not return. Yes, he will. And as some of you have been following along, there are certain portions of otherwise or perhaps used to be trustworthy men in the Reformed Church that are today denying such things as the resurrection and the return of Christ. They have imbibed in the error of Hymenaeus and Philetus, saying that the resurrection is past already. Right? That error was condemned in the first century. Paul said he delivered men to Satan for that, that they would learn not to blaspheme. Yeah, we don't, uh, Paul doesn't mince his words on that. A denial of the resurrection is a denial of the gospel. It's also a denial of the judgment of Christ. Okay? All right, so so the parousia, that's 2, 1 through 12. Uh, This parousia also includes... um, the what we call the coming of Antichrist or the manifestation of Antichrist. And Lord willing, we'll talk about that this afternoon. Further thanksgiving and prayer for the second half of chapter 2 and then final exhortations 3, 1 through 15. And then uh, a similar uh, conclusion, uh, I'm sorry, a, a conclusion with a disciplinary problem in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through, uh, or sorry, 6 through 18. And that's, you know, the man is not working. And so we want to talk about that at the end. So uh, how, how do we remember this? Are you ready? Comfort and correction regarding the parousia of Christ. Some of you got that, right? Comfort and correction regarding the parousia of Christ. C-C-R-P-C. Hopefully you'll be able to remember that. Okay, so chapter 1, let's dive in. We have that first section. I've lumped it all together in 1 through 4. The greeting is, is uh, really interesting. Uh, it is that same greeting that we see everywhere, and yet it is so very uh, helpful and fruitful. First of all, let's talk about Paul's companions, Silvanus and Timotheus, and let's speak about perseverance in the ministry. Silvanus, uh, Silas is, his, is the other name he goes by in the New Testament. And Timothy, that's the other name he goes by in the New Testament. Uh, they have been with Paul through persecution and they're yet with him. They haven't been scared off because of the difficulties. Because of the, quote, rigors of the ministry. 
not only those rigors, but as Paul will say to the Corinthians, the, the, you know, the, the pressing of the care of the churches, all of those things. The, the fact that you will give an answer to the Lord. So we, we want to cry up the perseverance of, of Silas and Timothy here as they continue as Paul's companions, although it has not been easy, certainly has not. All right, notice this church of the Thessalonians is in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, they are in Him. That is being united to Him. They're united to the Godhead through Christ. They are, that means that they partake of that, quote, divine life, right? Not in that divine nature that we're somehow uh, the error of the Eastern Orthodox Church we call theosis, right? That we're becoming like God in that way, naturally or according to nature or essence, but that we partake of the divine life. And that cannot be gainsaid, right? Because apart from that divine life, there's only abiding death. The apostolic benediction, grace to you and peace. Grace is what we call unmerited favor, the saving mercy of God given to undeserving sinners and all other graces that flow from that. And then also peace, that is peace with God through Jesus Christ, as we heard last Wednesday night, right? Not mere tranquility, but right relationship with God through Christ and then all of its effects in this world. And then notice he gives thanks and praise for the Thessalonian church. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet. That is, it is right. Remember also that he had prayed before and commanded them that they grow more and more in their love one for another. Notice here in 2 Thessalonians, he commends them for that growth. You see what he says here? Because your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity, agape, of every one of you toward each other aboundeth. He said earlier, see that you abound in that more and more. And now he commends them. Well, what a great lesson, not only for those who are commanded, but those who give command as well. Right? We want not only to command, but to commend. When those... Uh, commands are taken to heart, right? So parents, it's often easy, um, even when we, when we look upon our own selves, we're, uh, it is easy for us to, to see the pox and the blemishes and the difficulties and the sins. But let us also make note of God's mercy Not commending ourselves, but commending the Lord for every small advance that we make, no matter how small. These come from the Lord. This is the Lord's blessing to us. And so he commends the Thessalonians that what he commanded them to do and prayed for them in, he sees progress in that. And then finally notice that Paul takes that and uses it as an example to the rest of the churches. We ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. So they endure tribulation. Uh, Paul uses that as something that they have uh, to commend uh, to the churches uh, that they would also learn to follow the example of the Thessalonians. Really a great use. This is what it means to live in the communion of saints. Right? 
We have people to look upon, to appreciate, and to follow. We have good examples. Uh, We have people to care for and to pray for. We can identify the Lord's work in them and give thanks for that. This is part of what we call the communion of saints, where we share in one another's gifts and graces. Let's not have a carnal use of that, right? Oh, hey, brother, uh, I need a few bucks. You know, share of your gifts and graces. Not like that, right? Let's not have a carnal use of that. All right. So, all of your tribulations that ye endure, now we come to verse 5. Um. Well, I'll tell you what, before that, let's take a moment and talk about why the Lord sends tribulation. We see in our day, don't we, that the church, especially in some places, is still enduring persecution and affliction for the faith. Now, I'm kind of a weird guy when it comes to eschatology. I don't fit in any particular category. Most of you know that. Um, I see that, that we will have persecution and tribulation to the end, although I also see a progress of the gospel to the end. And that progress will be hard-won progress. I think the first four horsemen in the book of Revelation, there in chapter 6, the first four seals talk about the advance of the gospel, that the gospel going, goes forth conquering and to conquer, but it goes forth with the pale horse, not just the white horse. It also goes forth with the red horse, and it also goes forth with the black horse, that it is accompanied in all of its advancement with difficulty, affliction, tribulation. This separates us from the world, doesn't it? It brings us together as the people of God. The Lord sends tribulation to his to separate out of the church who are not serious or truly his to provide for them the comfort of his spirit and then to comfort one another to strengthen and harden the people of God in their faith. And I mean make firm harden, not harden like hard-heartedness, but to harden us like, like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then also to be an encouragement to others in suffering for righteousness sake and to separate us from the world. In all of those things, the Lord progresses or advances the estate of the church as she learns more and more to rest upon him in tribulation. So let us not become also too esoteric in this, right? That this tribulation takes place somewhere over there across the ocean in China where the church is being persecuted, in the Middle East where the church is being persecuted, by the way, and flourishing at the same time. But let us also remember our dear brethren in Canada that were jailed and had goods and and homes and other things taken from them for simply meeting at church. And then let us remember also our brethren here at home that that, that came under threat of civil magistracy simply for meeting and so on. Beloved, let us remember that that it's not such an esoteric thing. There will be always in every age of the church at least this marginalization, patronization, thank you, I got it. And, uh, and, and, and there will be uh, estrangement, right, from others because, why? Because we're faithful. Even from those also who name the name of Christ. Remember that letter that was written by a more liberal church uh, to the civil magistrate when that, uh, when that uh, 
Calvinistic Baptist Church was closed up there in Ontario and they were cheering on the civil magistrate. Thank you for finally closing down this church. Written by the purported friends of Christ. So let's remember all of those things. All right, so now, what about this tribulation? What is another use to make of it? And here we have in verses 5 through 10. These trials are an evidence of God's righteous judgment. Hmm. It doesn't seem like it to us, does it? Think about that. Here's God's people. They're the ones being persecuted. How is that an evidence of God's righteous judgment? Yet that's exactly what Paul says. Well, beloved, we must remember that the righteous judgment of God does not, quote, play favorites. God will call sin, sin, even in his people. And God sends no persecution to any people that is commensurate with the judgments that they deserve. Rather, these are God's kindnesses to us that he still hates sin, even among his people, and would purge it from them. And so in the first instance, it's a manifold token of the judgment, the righteous judgment of God in that he will even judge his people. Judgment begins at the house of God. But the second thing that Paul will say here is that you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. That is, that God in his righteous judgment through tribulation and the grace that he gives to endure that tribulation means that that there is this movement that God has made in our hearts that we should not be insincere but actually sincere and heartfelt that we would stay the course in judgments, in tribulations with God in his kingdom. And so that's also a part of his judgment. His judgment to separate. Right? Now there will be the final assize at the end of days. But even now uh, haven't we said to one another that the events of these last few years has been very purging, very much a, a, a calling out of sincerity in God's people and a revealing of insincerity in many? God separates even in these days, and that's a sign of his righteous judgment. Uh, so for which you also suffer. It is a righteous thing with God. Now watch, Paul is going to advertise exactly what he means to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. In other words, the other thing that God is doing in this suffering is he's storing up wrath. There's a day when he will return. And in the day that he returns, he will take all of that tribulation that has been inflicted upon his people unjustly, and he will turn that upon the inflictors of it. God will render tribulation to them that trouble you. And then, notice, he will also render unto you rest. Those of you who are troubled, he will recompense to you rest, Paul says to the Thessalonians, with us, that is Paul and Silas and Timothy, when the Lord Jesus returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on his enemies with his mighty angels and all those who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now I want to make 
known here that there's, that we use this phrase in our larger catechism. And it's very interesting that we have put it in the larger catechism where it is and why Paul uses it here. I think the Westminster divines have it exactly right when they say, notice that in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who were the persecutors? The synagogue. The Jews. What was the synagogue in those days before the temple fell? A viable, visible church. Why do we know it was a viable, visible church? Because whenever Paul came into town, that's where he stopped first. That was the church. And he came and brought the gospel message to the church. And if that church believed, Paul wouldn't have had to go, say, in Ephesus like he did over to the school of Tyrannus. And set up the church after they were kicked out of the church. Perhaps that's what happened in Berea. That's why we never hear of an alternate church being set up in Berea. Because, you know, the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Because they received the word with readiness of mind and searched the scriptures to see if those things were so. I wouldn't be dogmatic on it, but I would say that wherever Paul went preaching, when he started in the synagogue, he started in the church, and if they obeyed the gospel of Christ... Well, then that became the church. We know that in Corinth, the officers of the synagogue left the synagogue and became the officers of the church. So, when Paul says that these persecutors will be punished, he characterizes them as they know not God and obey not the gospel. How is it that they obey not the gospel if they've never heard it? No, they've heard it. The Thessalonian synagogue had the gospel preached and they obeyed it not. And they became the persecutors of the church instead. And our larger catechism uses that same phraseology in larger catechism 45. How did Christ execute the office of a king? In calling out of the world people to himself, giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them, bestowing saving grace upon his elect, uh, Rewarding their obedience, correcting them for their sins, uh, preserving and supporting them all their, under all their sins and temptations, powerfully ordering all things for his glory and their good, uh, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. That is those who have heard the gospel preached and obeyed it not. Those in the church. So you see what Paul's talking about here. And how clearly Paul says that these persecutors of yours, they will meet their end. And so what do we say then? That while the visible church is indeed a safe haven, it is not that for everyone that is here. And so as Peter will tell us, we want to make our calling and election sure. And then the other thing that Paul says here that I have found so liberating in my own understanding of eschatology over over the decades this was the passage that first drew me away from the dispensational premillennialism that i was raised in because notice what paul does here he makes this all very simple doesn't he we said this earlier but here it is simple in spades notice what he says there's a day coming jesus is going to return and when he returns what is he going to do 
Well, he's going to come down, and then he's going to go up, and then he's going to come back, and then he's going to... No, Paul doesn't say that. He says he's going to come back one day, and when he comes back, he's going to take vengeance on his enemies and give his people rest. I like that. Doesn't that simplify everything? Doesn't that take away the up, down, left, right, three and a half, seven, and all those other numbers that are typically thrown at you where make it so confusing you can't understand eschatology, you'd rather do calculus? Right? Some of you said, well, I could do calculus, bring it. But here, it just becomes all very simple. It's all very clear. The same day that Christ returns to judge his enemies is the same day that he will return to give his people rest from that trouble. Rest from that tribulation. This is what we said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. They will meet the Lord in the air. At that same day is when he will bring vengeance upon his enemies. There's not this thousand year separation and a mixed multitude of glorified and unglorified saints on earth in that day or unglorified people and glorified saints living on earth so that the gospel can be preached and the rest of the elect can be saved. You're living on earth with glorified people. (laughs) Anyway, doesn't make any sense. So uh, the right use of persecution then and the right outcome of it is all based on faith and not of works. It is by faith that we call upon the name of the Lord through the testimony of the apostles. It is by faith that we persevere in the days of tribulation and persecution. And it is that faith which sustains us uh, to the entrance of the glorious kingdom of Christ at death and will be the foundation that sustains us in the day of judgment. And that's what Paul says, that our testimony among you was believed in that day. And then we come to the end of the chapter Paul will say, wherefore also, we pray always for you. And notice, whenever Paul, after that certainty of the return of Christ and all of that, then he will say, and we pray for you. Well, Paul, if this is all going to happen, why pray? It's it's a fait accompli, right? And we've, we've talked about this before. Yes, it is. And it's going to come to pass through the means that God has ordained. And one of those means is prayer. One of those means is perseverance. One of those means is stick-to-itiveness, right? Coming to church week by week, here, sitting under the means of grace, opening your Bibles day by day, praying, meditating upon God's Word, all of those things. And the Lord is pleased to make use of those means to make sure that you stand on that last day with Him and receive the rest that Christ has promised you. With that then, let's draw the reading to a close and let's stand.